been said that the only two things in life that are for sure and for certain are death and taxes. Yep, April 15 rolls around. I know I'm paying my taxes. I'm sure you do as well. And the one other thing that we can never escape, death. Every person faces it. doesn't matter how rich you are or how poor. We're all going to die one day. We hope to live a long life, but sometimes we are cut off short in our youth and mid-age and... It's a sad day because it's just one thing that we'll never escape. There's another reality about death, too. There have been billions of dollars made on death. Well, there's the industry of death, there's funeral homes, crematories, and that. But I'm speaking of the money that's been made on television shows, movies, books that have really taken this idea of death and they've made it attractive. Well, I can tell you this I'm not looking forward to it. But there is something better coming. We'll talk about that in the session that's coming up after this one. But I want to talk to you today about death. Now, it's not a subject we like talking about, but it is a necessary one. And there's a truth about death that if we understand it, it makes it more palatable. It, it lets us see in how it fits into God's master plan. I would encourage you, as we've been going through these sessions, to, to look to this right here. God's Word. You see, in here is a narrative. This whole Bible, it starts with creation in Genesis, and then if you flip all the way to the back, to Revelation 20 to 21 to 22, right here, it speaks about recreation. We have the bookends of God's amazing narrative of his love. And that's what the Bible is about, and therefore we need to look at the Bible in this regard, and we need to say, what does the Bible say about death in relationship to God's love. What are some of the things that we need to be aware of and know about so that we can accurately get a picture of what death is or what it is not and how God's love pertains to the matter even of death. So in this beautiful book that tells a narrative of God's love, where do we start? Right in the beginning, Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything God created, everything that we see, was created by Jesus. We've talked about that in, an, in another session. But it was all handwork, handmade, beautiful, perfect, just as God is. It was the crowning achievement, this planet, this earth, and the humans that he made. Then, as we look a little bit further into Genesis, we first will establish this account that God created humans, and then we're going to take a little bit step further about how he made them. So, back to Genesis, chapter 1. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Here we have God's crowning achievement on day six. He's created everything else, but then he created humans. We go into Genesis 2 and the author, be Moses, He's circling back around, and now he's adding a little bit more depth and detail to it. Well, let's visit it together. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into man's nostrils, and then man became a living person. There's two components to human beings. There's an equation that I could give to you that might help make it a little bit easier. Let's look at it together. Dust plus breath equals living being. What did it say in Genesis 2? 
it said that he formed man out of the dust of the earth, and man became a living being. So, back to the equation, dust plus breath equals a living person. We get a little bit of indication here if we go read in Ecclesiastes from what Solomon said. We go to Ecclesiastes 12. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you say, I have no pleasure in them, before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken of the cistern. And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Now he's using some interesting metaphors, you know, the, the gold and the silver and the broken cistern. But in the end, he says, the, we will return to the dust and the spirit and the breath will return back to God. And this aligns very well with Genesis 3. This is after the fall. God is speaking to Adam and Eve and this is what he tells them. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Ultimately, death is the reversal of the creation process. Let's go back and look at this formula one more time. Dust plus breath equals living being. Let's take that formula, let's reverse it, and see what it looks like. Living being minus breath equals dust. One more time. Living being minus the breath equals death. Right. Most people don't have an issue with that. If they go exhume a body or they're looking somewhere and they find bones, they realize, well, that person that once lived, this is their body. This is the, the bones are turning into dust and they're crushed. So they don't have a problem with that. But they're saying, all right, well, the body stayed here. But what about the soul? Did the soul return to God or is it somewhere else? And that's where we're going to take the next part of our study. That's very crucial. So to do that, let's go back to Genesis 2-7 and read this together. And the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life in the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. That was from the New Living Translation. Now we're going to go to the King James Version, which for over 300 years was the authority of the Bible versions. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a what? Living soul. It's important to look at this particular word, living soul. Soul is the word I want to look at and focus in on. And what is the Hebrew word? Let's look at it together. It is nefesh, that which breathes, the, the breathing substance of being soul, the inner being of man, or another option is living being. This is important to know what the root word was that the author used. That was Moses when he was writing this down and he was speaking of a living being, a living person as a whole, holistically. It may not seem important right now, but it will here as we progress. This word, nefesh, Bible translators, and my counting in the New American Standard Bible, which is the one that I find is the closest to the original Hebrew and Greek, they've used it at a variety of 59 different times in the Bible. So it's been left up to a lot of interpretation, but the core of it is it's a living being. It's a person as a whole. Okay, let's go back to the text. and Let's look at something else that's very important. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Did you see that one word? Man became a living soul. It doesn't say that he got a living soul. It says he became a living soul. He became a living, breathing person. That's a very important distinction. That one word 
can really help us as we go forward and understand this. Man became a living soul. So what, what's this idea of the living soul? Where, where, where are we getting this from? Why is it that it's thought, well, everybody has a living soul. When you die, your living soul goes somewhere else. You don't have a soul that leaves your body as the biblical writers have it, in this particular word, nefesh, soul, it's encompassing of the whole person, the brain, the heart, the flesh, the breath, everything. It constitutes that as a living soul, as a human being. But where did this idea come from? Uh, it's, uh, it's very important for us to note. It's a traditional truth. It, it's one that has said, well, when you die, you have an immortal soul that goes somewhere. It either goes to God or it goes to hell. It, it, it does something, but it, it leaves because the soul is something that is separate from the body. That's what the, that's what the truth that has been talked about for so long is for many people. That is not the case. The biblical narrative of God's love tells us something better, something more. And understanding this complete picture, it's a beautiful thing. That's why we're going to spend just a few more minutes on it together. Because understanding the Bible holistically, again, this word, cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, is a narrative that is holistic, that reveals the truth of itself, and we need to let the Bible speak for itself. Now, I'm going to risk the tedium of, of a few quotes, but I believe it will help give some clarification, and I'm going to start with Norman Gully, who is an excellent theologian, and he was one of my professors when I went to school for theology. And he gives us some insight of understanding nefesh, soul, how it's used in the Bible, and how, in the New Testament, the Greek word of psyche also was supposed to be used. So, again, risking the tedium of a, of a few quotes here over the next several minutes. Please bear with me. But let's pay close attention to them because I feel very confident that when you see this, in light of what the Bible has to say, it will make perfect sense. Beginning with Norman Gully. In religious studies, the tendency has been to speak of humans as a soul within a body, as if the soul is the real person, and at death, the soul moves out of the body and continues existence apart from the body. But this way of thinking overlooks the fact that the entire Bible was written by Jews who thought holistically of humans, even though the New Testament was written in Greek. This means that the word psyche, or soul, though it is a Greek word, has a Hebrew meaning, which is, in quote, the seat of the will, desire, and affections, or it is used to refer to a person or self rather than the entity separate from the body. Many biblical and theology scholars fail to grasp the Hebrew meaning of psyche, so the Greek meaning supersedes the Hebrew meaning, and as a result, a pagan interpretation replaces the biblical interpretation. If the biblical sola scriptura hermeneutic is applied, allowing scripture to interpret scripture, then the Hebrew meaning is preserved. Fascinating. It's all in how you interpret a particular word. And as he points out, you say, well, are you sure the Jews? Yep. John, Paul, Matthew, Mark, they were Jews. They were writing the Bible, and when they used the word, they were using it as they would understand that word to be used in their Hebrew understanding, even when they were writing in Greek. So they were writing of the soul as a living person, as a whole not as something that was going to be separate that would leave the body upon death. Well, how did this culture come in? How did this idea of an immortal soul actually find its way into our Christian thinking and our theology and our doctrines? 
mean, there are some pretty strong stances about what happens when you die, about the immortality of a soul. And, and just as a matter of clarification, when I say immortal, do you know what that means? I'm sure you do, but let's just clarify. It means it never dies. That it goes on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever with no end point. doesn't matter if you're good or bad, you're going to live forever. Period. But that's not what the Bible says. But again, how did it get there? We get a little bit of an understanding of this as we read a passage from Edward Fudge, who wrote a great book called The Fire That Consumes. And in this book, he shares where this idea of the immortal soul originated, as far as humans go. And it might not surprise you when you find out. The immortality of the soul was a principal doctrine of the Greek philosopher Plato. In Plato's thinking, the soul, or psyche, was self-moving and indivisible or simple, ungenerated and eternal. It existed before the body did, that it inhabited, and it would survive the body as well. Did you catch that? What Plato thought and what he shared with his contemporaries and as it traveled down through philosophy is that, well, let's just make it, let's make it to us, that we existed prior to us being born. Kind of goes along with the belief of reincarnation that comes from Buddhism and Hinduism and other religions. And Plato said, okay, well, you may be here now, you might have been born, but your soul existed prior to you being born, and when you die, take your last breath of this body, your soul's going to go and it's going to continue on in another form. <laughs> so 400 years before Christ lived here on this earth, Plato started this theory of the immortal soul that it came into existence prior to the body. I mean, what? Where does this stuff come from? Well, I can tell you where it came from, but not, not quite yet. So just hold your thought right there. Let's go a little bit further as Edward Fudge shares how this all came into being and what it really matters to us. Many Christian writers of the 2nd and 3rd centuries wanted to show their pagan neighbors the reasonableness of the biblical faith. They did that by the same way the Jewish apologist Philo of Alexandria had done it long before. Well, how was that? They wrapped their understanding of scripture in the robes of philosophy, choosing from the vocabulary of worldly wisdom the words that sparkled and adorned it best. Paul had often warned against his contemporary philosophy, but their apologists, zealous for their newfound faith, set out to battle the pagan thinkers on their own turf. They freely borrowed the Platonic conception of the soul, the chief characteristic being its separability from the body. When these Christian defenders argued for the resurrection and last judgment, they often used the pagan doctrine of immortality to show that these things were not logically absurd. Are you kidding me? They used the worldly belief to explain better the biblical truth as we would know it. They took this concept of the soul being a person, nefesh, being a whole, complete human being, and they intermingled it with the philosophical aspect of the immortality of the soul to prove biblical doctrinal points. The only difference that they had was they said, look, you don't, your soul doesn't exist prior to you existing, your body. It was given by God at the time that you were born, but it will exist afterwards. What a what a confining aspect of biblical truth to confine it to the world's idea of what they might understand best. Look, immortality of the soul is connected with salvation. I'm going to read you now a quote from N.T. Wright. He's talking about Platonists. They believe that all humans have an immortal element within them, normally referred to as souls. 
In the New Testament, however, immortality is something that only God possesses by nature and that he shares as a gift of grace rather than innate possession with his people. Do you see why it's important to let the Bible, through its narrative, explain itself to, to, to reveal the actual truth as, as a whole? Why it's dangerous to let other exterior beliefs come in? Look what happened when they left this Platonist view, this philosophical view of the immortality of the soul, define the soul as something different than what was originally intended. The original intent of using the word soul, nefesh, whole being. This is me. I am a living soul. I don't have a soul. I didn't get a soul. I became a living soul at creation, according to what God says in Genesis. Happened for me when I was born. Same thing for you. The point is, we, we let it bleed through, and this idea of immortality of a soul came through, and it bled into Christian belief in the first centuries A.D. after Christ was raised from the dead and after he was ascended into heaven. And it's dangerous. But there's one text that can deflate this whole argument about immortality of the soul. We go back to Genesis. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Before we go any further, two trees. Very important. Tree of life, tree of knowledge of good and evil. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, God had told Adam and Eve, you can eat of any tree in the garden that you want, just don't eat of this one. If you do, it proves that you have been disobedient. I only give you one tree that you can't eat. And he did that to preserve their freedom of choice, the greatest gift that he could ever give to human beings. But the other one was the tree of life. By access to this tree, they could live forever. Again, it was a gift from God. It wasn't given to them the minute that God breathed into them that they got this living soul and would live forever. God gave it to them as a gift. And how do we know that? We go to Genesis 3 after the fall. And we hear what God says in regards to Adam and Eve and their access to the tree of life. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. One verse dispels this idea of immortality as it relates to human beings. You see, God said, Look, if we give them access to this tree after they know good and evil, then they will continue to perpetuate sin and disobedience. So we need to take away their access. The gift of eternal life that was given at that tree was taken away to be given at another time. One verse deflates this idea of the immortality of the soul. Again, what did I say? Let the Bible share the truth as it's revealed right here. It will speak and it will tell you because the narrative is singular. From creation to recreation. It will tell you and reveal God's amazing love through the truths. So here we are. We're going a little bit further. And we say, hmm, how did this come about? What, what is this idea, this immortality of the soul? What kind of danger is it? Well, I, I can tell you this. Oscar Coleman, I think he sums it up extremely well. Immortality of the soul, he's referring to, is one of the greatest misunderstandings of Christianity. It is one of the greatest misunderstandings. And it has caused more pain, more disregard for the scripture, and really more doubt about God's love than just about any truth that is known and understood from the Bible. I can reveal that more to you here in the next session, which I strongly encourage you to watch as it's a partner to this one. But where did it come from? 
Where I mean, we say, well, Plato. I mean, he did it in the in the in the fourth century BCE. But no, it was actually before that. And to know that, we go back into Genesis in the Garden of Eden and this conversation that Eve is having with the serpent, which is Satan speaking through the serpent. And listen very closely what the serpent has to say. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, oh, we may eat fruit from the tree in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. For 6,000 years, Satan has been promulgating that lie. Oh, when you die, you're going to live forever. Well, we always push people up into heaven when they die, and we never push anybody down into hell. 6,000 years, and billions of people have bought into the lie. But the truth of death is even better, and it reveals the depth of God's character in so many different ways. How, you ask? Well, very simple. When you understand death, you understand the rapture. You understand the resurrection the thousand years, the millennium, you understand heaven, you understand hell, but above and beyond all of that, you understand God's love as it's revealed in the narrative of the Bible. From cover to cover, God is love is written throughout every page, and death is no exception. Well, you've said, okay, you've kind of got me on that one. I'm, I'm understanding there's no immortality, but what happens when you die? Well, that's a great question. I'm going to take you to two different books of the Bible, Ecclesiastes, was written by Solomon, and Psalms written by David, to get a glimpse into what happens when we die. Ecclesiastes 9, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. So what happens when you die? Nothing. You don't know anything. There's period, zip, nada, any knowledge at the grave where you're going. We dive a little bit further into Ecclesiastes, and Solomon writes, Whatever your hand finds to do, do with all your might, for in the realm of the dead where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. I think that gives a lot of clarity as to what happens when you die. I mean, you know absolutely nothing. Period. Not convinced? Let's go to Psalms, what David wrote. Do not put your trust in princes and human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. So you want the long answer or the short answer of what happens when you die? <laughs> well, the short answer is this. You cease to exist and know anything. Period. There's no immortality that, that is attached to you that minute you take your last breath that people see that just goes and flies away and becomes immortal somewhere else and continues to live and be for eternity. Now, immortality comes to those who believe. And I'll get to that in a minute. But immortality as we know it because of sin, not going to happen. You can't think, do, act, anything. In fact, you're saying, wait a minute. Okay, I'm having a real problem with this. And I, let me just slow down. Because I can understand for many that this is, this is a very shocking what you're hearing right now. I've dealt with people on this. They say, hmm, Grandma, she died and she went to go live with the Lord. I've been comforted. I mean, I, I think about, well, Grandma's looking down on me and she is encouraging me and loving me. What, my mother, my, my sibling, my loved one, somebody that passed away, I thought they were in heaven. Well, even the Bible gives clarity on this. 
Psalm 6-5, among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? So asking the question, if we really think, as we've been taught, that when you die, you go to heaven, why would the Bible tell us this? What does it say? The dead don't praise God. Well, if you're going to go to heaven, what's the first thing you're going to do? One of my favorite songs by Mercy Me is I Can Only Imagine. I'm going to either be silent or I'm going to praise God loudly. But it says the dead do not praise God. So there's no immortality that says that when you die, you immediately go to heaven or hell. We experience the same thing from Adam, Eve, all the way to the last person that died in the last one thousandth of a second somewhere in the world today. It's a sleep. It is a death that you don't know anything. We all have this one thing in common. All of us are going to die and we're all going to experience the exact same thing until something magnificent happens. But let's, re re let's revisit Job. A man dies and is laid low, he breathes his last and is no more. As the water of a lake dries up or a riverbed becomes parched and dry, so he lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more, people will not awake or be roused from their sleep. Oh, there it is. This idea of sleep, death as a sleep. Huh, what do you know? The Bible refers to death quite often as a sleep. You say, well, I'm not really sure that I've ever heard of that give me some examples. Well, Jesus himself used it, God the Son. He used it. I'm going to give you two specific examples. The first is Jairus. He comes to Jesus, as it's written in a couple different gospels. Look, my daughter is, 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 is dying. She's very sick. If you would come to the house, she can be healed. So Jesus begins the journey with Jairus, and he walks to the house with the disciples, and he gets there, and we pick it up here in the gospel of Mark. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all the commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. Now, it does say further that they laughed at him and mocked him for what he had to say. But it goes on then to tell what happened. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. Our next example is what would, to many people, would be the best friend of Jesus. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus is sick. Mary and Martha, they send a message to Jesus, and, the, and they say, Our brother's sick. You heal everybody else. Would you come heal him? And Jesus ponders it, and he waits. And he's having the discussion with the disciples. They're talking about it. They get another message. And finally, Jesus talks to the disciples and says, Maybe we should go. And he relates to them a very important truth, again, as it relates to death and sleep. After he had said this, he was talking to the disciples, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. There's that word. But I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. There we have two accounts, and there are others, that talk about death as a sleep. A question for you. When you fall asleep, what do you know about the world around you? Absolutely nothing. In fact, we, you can go to sleep. Maybe tonight you're going to go to bed at 10 o'clock. And you have a very fitful night's sleep. And tomorrow morning you're going to wake up at, say, 8 o'clock. 10 hours have gone by. Anything can happen around you. And if you have slept soundly, you'll know absolutely nothing about it. But to you, it's just like that. You went to sleep, boom, you woke up and the sun is out. That's what sleep is. That's what death is. It's an unconscious state. You don't know anything. You're not breathing. Your, your body is just lying dormant. It's in a sleep. 
You're unaware of anything happening. In fact, Paul even goes a little bit further in regards to this. We pick it up here in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Again, I know that for many who have had this belief, they say, I've been taught all these years that when you die, you go to heaven. My, my mom, my dad, my love, my, all these people that I love, I thought they were in heaven. And, and you say, well, what's the truth? Let me ask you this. Remember I said that the Bible reveals God's love? How loving would it be if God were to let someone that you care for and you love deeply, who loves you in return, to go to heaven and then peer down on this earth and see all the pain and suffering that you're going through? Would that be happiness to them, watching you go through all of this? So God says, no, I'm going to let them sleep. That way they're unconscious until a certain point and a certain day comes when everyone who has believed will be raised up. You see, because here's the other part we talk about. Now, I've done a number of funerals as a pastor, close to 150 plus. And I've been to funerals. I've never once heard anybody preach somebody into hell. I always preach them into heaven. And I've, I went to one funeral one time, and the, and the guy, I mean, he was a hellion. And somebody whispered to me, they obviously didn't know the guy because there is no way he's going to heaven. He's going to H-E-L-L. And there's another reality, this question about hell. If the immortality of the soul was there, if when you die, you continue to live as a separate being outside of your body that's rotting in the grave, or it's been cremated, what about those who died not believing in God? What kind of love would it be if a God who says, oh, I love you and with an everlasting love said, okay, I got an idea. You don't want to love me in return? I'm just going to let you burn forever. Maybe you live 20, 30, 50, 80 years on this earth, but you are a sinner and you didn't believe in me? Fine. Forever you're going to burn. Does that sound fair? How does that freedom of choice, if you've been threatened, that you'll burn if you don't love me? So again, this is the, what's happened when you believe in this idea of immortality of the soul as it's been preached and understood for, for centuries. But when you let the Bible speak for itself, and you let the Bible tell you the truth about what death is, what it is not, and how it pertains to God's love, it opens it up to a whole other understanding, and you start thinking it through logically, and you say, you know what? In the light of God's love, this makes perfect sense. Let's go a little bit further. Because understanding this aspect of the immortality of the soul is an amazing thing. It, 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 it helps you realize that everything else that God does is done out of love, <laughs> never anything else. This misunderstanding of death, look, you know what it's done? It's made billions of dollars for movies, for television shows, for books, for those who are spiritualists, those who are mediums, those who advertise that they can speak to the dead. It's made billions and millions and trillions for them. But it's not true. It's not accurate, it's not biblical, but you say, well, hmm, I have a question for you. If the dead are sleeping, then who's talking? If they can't come back as ghosts or anything else, then who's talking? Let's go to the Bible and again reveal that, because first of all, Job, he writes, as a cloud vanishes and is gone, so one who goes down to the grave does not return, he will never come back to his house again, his place will know him no more. So, you know, those who say, well, this house is haunted, the person who lived here and was died, they came back and they're rapping on the windows and doing things. Well, the Bible clearly says that can't happen. That it's impossible. 
The dead don't communicate. The dead know nothing. They're sleeping. They're unconscious. I mean, I've heard a lot about ghosts. I see a lot on TV. The walking dead, the zombies. Hmm. The dead can't even praise God, as we see. For the grave cannot praise you. Death cannot sing your praise. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. So this, again, poses a great question that many of you may have. If the dead are asleep and they're unconscious, then who's talking? When a medium says, oh, I heard from so-and-so, or I heard your dead mother, your dead father, your dead sister, sibling, whatever, speaking, who is that? What about the ghosts? Again, let's let the Bible explain itself and get a little bit clearer definition and understanding of it. Our first stop is going to go into Deuteronomy. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these same detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. Why did God warn them so specifically and so adamantly, stay away from them? We get a little better understanding and a glimpse here in Psalms 106 because we're dealing with demons, evil angels. Let's get a little bit more clarification on it. Psalms 106. They did not destroy the peoples. He's talking about the Israelites even after God gave them the warning as the Lord commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and learned their practices, served their idols which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and daughters to the demons. Why was God's word so strong to them? Because God knew that they were these other nations were worshiping false gods. Well, what do we have going on right now in this world? We have God's eternal truth and character, and we have Satan's lies and his character of death, of deceit, of anger, manipulation. And God knew that these heathen nations were worshiping and bowing down to the wrong gods. These were demons. How do we know? We go to the book of Mark and we get, it, we get a little glimpse as Jesus is dealing with the demons. And Mark writes, And he healed many of them who were ill of various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Wait a minute. They knew who he was? Well, didn't everybody? No, they knew who he was. He didn't have to say, I'm the son of God. They knew because they had a firsthand evidence because they lived in heaven before they were cast down as found in Revelation 12. They knew who Jesus was before war broke out in heaven. And these evil angels are the same ones that are impersonating the dead and doing all these things to manipulate our minds into thinking and believing this truth that when you die, you just exist somewhere else. And we have to remember, everything around us, even right now as you're watching this, as I'm preparing it and sharing it with you, it's spiritual warfare. Satan is always working. He's always lurking. He's always trying to deceive us and get us to believe something else. We find this in Ephesians as a reminder. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Death is the end. Everything else is a lie. But why would Satan work so hard to perpetuate this lie? Simple. He wants to distort and destroy our image of God's character, what the Bible says about God. He wants us to believe differently. You say, well, how could he do that through death? Because by choosing to give us a belief of the immortality of the soul that we either go to heaven or we go to hell, he can distort even that in God's love. But the truth is so much better. 
the truth about what happens when we die and what God is going to give to us is amazing. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Oh, it's getting better. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. You see, think about this. Just throwing this in for you is a little bit of thought process and got in, the, in the aspect of God's love. Wouldn't it have been cruel for Jesus after Lazarus had been dead for four days to say, well, enough of heaven for you, buddy. Let's go. Come back out. And interestingly enough, we have no documentation from Lazarus that he saw, heard, or did anything, period, because he was asleep. What about the, the, the others that Jesus raised from the dead, the widow of, of Nain? She raised, his, she raised her son. The son didn't say anything to his mother. Well, that was disappointing. I have to come back here. I got to work. Man, I was in heaven. It was great. Then there are those who say, well, what about the thief on the cross? I, I thought that, that Jesus said, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Ah, and there's the key. He was saying, he was telling him today, as he was on the cross, I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. See, we put commas in, in, in grammar in our translations that were never there in the original Greek or Hebrew. There's no comma in there. He's saying, I tell you, you wretched person who has accepted me, by my grace, you'll be with me in paradise. I'm telling you today, right here, right now, as we hang on this cross together, we're going to be in paradise. I will see you. And that thief is sleeping, but to him it will be just instantaneous. He lost his life, and he will open his eyes again, and he will see the very one who is hanging on the cross. He will see him face to face at the resurrection. But the Bible is so clear, and it is so true about God's love and how it pertains to death. And it meshes completely with John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. There you go. Eternal life is gifted to all who believe. To you, to me, anyone who has lived and has already died, or anyone who's living now. And Paul says it's gifted when Jesus comes. Not right now. We're not dying and having immortal lives in heaven or in hell or anywhere else. It's a gift at his coming. Let's let Edward Fudge have the last word on this as he writes. The Bible always speaks of human immortality as God's gift to the saved, never an inherent quality of birthright of every person born into the world. You may be thinking as I wrap this up, oh, this is just a really interesting session. I don't know how it really goes along with the other ones. Well, it, it does. Let me explain. I have been trying through the Something More series to show you that what we may know, what we may have experienced, what limitations we have on biblical truth and understanding, when we know God's character and his love for us, we realize we don't know anything. That God has something more planned beyond anything we could ever believe. That even in things that are hopeless, like death, it's one of the saddest occasions. I mean, I hate going to funerals and, and losing somebody that I love. My father passed away uh, almost five years ago. I miss him every day. I don't like death. But knowing that my father took his last breath, and to him, it'll just be an instant and a moment before he sees Jesus, because he died believing, is a great truth to me and a comfort. And it reveals God's love that even in the midst of something as painful as death, 
which God never wanted us to experience. He has a plan. This immortality of the soul that's been the lie that just don't die, I mean, it's ruined our perspective on God's character. It's ruined the perspective on other truths, heaven, hell, the rapture, the second coming. It is totally distorted, and Satan's used it to destroy the belief, to destroy our confidence in God's amazing love. When we understand the truth about death, and I wanted to take you through it logically. That's what I've tried to do through most of these sessions. And it's personal, yes, but to logically show you that the Bible will tell you and reveal the truths. When we understand death, and we even see that in the midst of a most painful thing, what God has planned, what God has done, is beautiful. And it is even more than we could ever have imagined.